Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to follow along with me. And if you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to pick one up on the table as you walk out today. We'd love to give you one of those. So please feel free to take one if you need one. Again, we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dana. Well, again, uh, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, glad you're here. Um, eager to jump into God's word this morning. But before we do, let me pray for our time as we continue on in worship together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit that is at work in us, asking, Lord, that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you would open our eyes to see what we do not see. Lord, would you show us who you are and what it means for us to walk in your ways, that we might be the people you've called us to be, living in this world, reflecting your goodness and grace in all things. So, Lord, may this time be a time of worship, of refinement, uh, of a recalibration of our hearts and loves and perspectives of life, that we might leave this place honoring you in all things. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, uh, short, short is the list, I think, of things that, that ruin relationships more, more powerfully and effectively than, than lies. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? I mean, like lies, lies have this ability to, to erode trust, to diminish hope, to weaken love in so many ways. Uh, we see it in small things and big things. We see it in relationships and communities. And, and I think we all feel this very acutely because many of us have fallen prey. We fell prey recently to, to a lie that was just so pervasive in our city that just crushed us and stung us. It was the lie that the Chiefs would win the AFC championship and go on to win the Super Bowl, people. My goodness, ah, I've slowly recovered. Um, no, but, but in all seriousness, we, we do. We, have all, we all understand the power that lies have, 
the ways in which they do erode trust, both, both in relationships but also on a larger scale. We see it in, in the destruction of communities, corporations, and cultures. In fact, recently, the New York Times recently ran a story about members of the Sackler family who, who own the, the parent company that produces uh, the painkiller OxyContin. And, and what this article came to show is that, that members of the Sackler family intentionally, knowingly, misled doctors and patients for years uh, about the, the damaging impacts and the, the addictive power of this painkiller. And I mean, this, this is a big lie. I mean, talk about, talk about why we need to enter into our Monday life being formed and shaped by the truths of Jesus. I mean, this is speaking to that. But, but these kinds of lies, not only do they weaken the, the trust of the public, but they very much produce a, a, a vandalism on the flourishing of society. Lies have great power within our world. But perhaps the, the, the lies that are most pernicious and most prominent are the ones that are of, of the homemade variety, the, the lies that we create, that we tell ourselves and hoist upon others, lies that we tell ourselves through the stories that we believe and that carry us into our Monday life. Because you see, all of us live out and believe some story that gives meaning to, significance to, definition to how we live our lives on Monday. And, and if you're new with us, uh, we, we've been in this series called Church for Monday where we've been looking at and trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus in all of life, what it means to be a whole and influential apprentice of Jesus who follows Jesus not on Sundays, not just on Sundays, but in all of life. And we've been doing so by looking at what we refer to the seven marks of discipleship. Uh, these aren't like everything that there is to know about following Jesus, but we've seen that so far that a, a follower of Jesus who's ready for Monday, ready to follow Jesus in all of life, takes up their cross, they deny themselves, they, they recognize that Jesus has rights over their lives, that secondly, that they put on the yoke, that they walk with Jesus in everything, they're formed and shaped by the way in which he sees the world. And this morning we turn to our third mark, which is that the follower of Jesus who's ready for Monday builds their life on the Bible. They build their life on the Bible. And this mark is so important on, on many levels, but one in particular is that I, I believe this mark speaks to why all of us, regardless of, of your age and stage of life, whether you're in school, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're working or retired, all of us struggle to find meaning in our Monday life in some way, shape, or form. And I think part of the reason, a large reason, for why we struggle to find meaning in what we do tomorrow is because we lack a grand story that makes sense of what we do. We lack a grand narrative that makes sense of all of our stories and gives meaning, purpose, and value to how we conduct our lives. And because of that, what I want to do this morning is look at just this idea. If there's one thing you remember, may it be this is that Monday, whatever you do on Monday, Monday doesn't make sense without a story. Monday doesn't make sense without a story. And, and we all have, as I mentioned, we all have a story that we believe in and that we live out on Monday. There's some story that gives meaning and purpose and value to how we conduct ourselves, how we value things, how we interact and treat others, how we think about finances, everything. We all believe in some story. But the question is, is it the right story, and is there a better story? 
And as we turn to our text, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 4. That's where we'll be all morning. And as we turn there, the first thing I want us to see as we look at Paul, who really is kind of a case study for what it means to build your life in the Bible, the first thing I want to challenge us with is that you and I, we need to admit that we need a better story. Can we get to a place where we can admit that we need a better story? Now, like I mentioned, we, we all are susceptible to lies. We're all susceptible to believing things that aren't true. And, and I'm not talking about the lies that we like know aren't true, like the lies that we tell ourselves, you know, like the lie that like, I'm just gonna eat one Girl Scout cookie. Like we know that's a lie, right? Like you know that. It's, what I mean is I'm just gonna eat one box of Girl Scout cookies. But those, those, those cookies disappear very quickly, hauntingly so. But, but I'm talking more about the lies that we tell ourselves that we believe to be true that we are unaware of how, de- how deceived we are and how, deceived we, uh, we have, how much we have deceived others. Th- these, these lies that we tell are kind of crafted or couched, rather, in this conditional language where we say things like, if I only had more blank, then I would be happy. You see, these are the lies and stories that we tell ourselves that influence how we live tomorrow. If I were free of, of this, then I would finally find contentment. If, if he or she or if they would start or stop doing this, then my problems would go away. Or if I could finally start or stop doing this, maybe God would love me, accept me, and bless me. When we believe these lies, when these stories form and shape our Monday life, we either, at best, struggle to find meaning in our Monday life, or we start to corrupt ourselves and others through the way in which we live our lives on Monday at worst. So the question is, what are the stories we've bought into, and is there a better story? And the Apostle Paul shows us that there is a better story. There is a story that is big enough to handle and make sense of everything that we face and encounter tomorrow morning and beyond. And so what I want us to look at is, I want us to see Paul, we're going to look at this text, but kind of from a a meta uh, perspective, and seeing how Paul models for us what it means to build our life upon the story of God. And just to give some context, so Paul is writing, this is the second letter to the Corinthian church, and Paul's writing largely to kind of defend his position as an apostle of Jesus. Uh, His reputation has been defamed, he has been imprisoned and beaten, Uh, he's been shipwrecked and tortured in various ways, and Paul's trying to explain why he is a legitimate apostle of Jesus. And he does so by kind of explaining the cost that he has endured in following Jesus. But what's amazing is the way in which Paul frames his suffering in a larger story. And so we read in in 2 Corinthians 4, read these words in verse 8 with me. It says, not, not read them with me, but read along with me. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed or overwhelmed or anxious, some translations say, but, uh, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. What is it that empowers Paul to be afflicted, but, but not be driven to despair? What is it that gives him these categories to face difficulty? Because he's not denying his suffering. He's not denying or minimizing or trivializing his pain, but rather, he's framing his pain in a larger story. He's not just offering these vague religious platitudes or this kind of like naive religious spiritual optimism, but rather what Paul is doing is he is framing his life and specifically his suffering, which is no small thing, 
He's framing it in a larger story. And, and this is actually what a professor of, of American studies at the University of Columbia, uh, his name is Andrew Del Banco, uh, he talks about the need for all humans to organize their lives around some structured story. This is what Del Banco argues. He says, without some such symbolic structure or a story by which hope is expressed, one would be, and this is great, one would be a kind of formless monster with neither sense of direction nor power of self-control, a chaos of spasmodic impulses and vague emotions. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our tiny allotment of days and hours. If we are to keep at bay the dim back of the mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. Happy Sunday, go in peace. That's a very, like, that's a very depressing, bleak, and understanding of reality. But what Del Banco's arguing is that like, we need a story that frames and shapes our existence. Without such a substantial, coherent narrative, we, to make sense of our lives, we will find ourselves, as what, what Del Banco refers to, perpetually plagued by the lurking suspicion that all, our getting and, that all of our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Now, th those are kind of dark, morbid words, but there's a sense in which what he's speaking to is true. He's speaking to the predominant narrative that our culture kind of buys into. The narrative that forms and shapes our lives is that where you are both the victim and the hero of your story, and the triumph, the climax of your story, is by living a wealthy life, a happy life, a comfortable life, and a nice life. And, and those are nice things, I'm not bashing them. But is that the kind of story that is big enough to sustain us amidst suffering? Is it true enough to form us and give meaning? I believe we need a better story than that to shape and make sense of our Monday life. And as we look to Paul through this text, yes, we need to admit that we need a better story than that. We all need a story to frame and shape our lives around. But as we see through Paul's example in the text, we also learn that a disciple who is ready for Monday must also see everything through God's story. It's not just that we admit we need a story, but we must see everything through God's story. What we observe in Paul here is that he, he sees suffering and pain through the lens of God's story that culminates in the person and the work of Jesus. Again, Paul is not diminishing or trivializing his suffering. It's like, it's not that big of a deal, but he's putting it in the context of a greater story. And this is partly what Paul means in verse 10 when we read how he talks about his understanding of his faith in Jesus. He says, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see, for Paul, what, what this partly means, uh, for Paul, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not just a collection of moral instructions. It's not even just good news that we give cognitive assent to, like I believe in that, although that's true. But rather, the gospel is this true story that Paul is always carrying with him, that he takes with him wherever he goes, that it's not a pill he swallowed once at summer camp in 1987, and he's good, but it is a story that forms and shapes everything about him. No offense to anybody who went to a Christian camp in 1987, but the point is, is that this story frames and shapes everything about Paul. And what, what he's doing in the text is he's very practically displaying for us 
how we encounter and look at and interpret everything through this grand story of God. But the question is, what is this story? What is the framework, the narrative that Paul is using to understand and make sense of his suffering and everything? Well, one of the ways we talk about it at Christ's community is that the Bible, the story of God, can be told through a four-chapter narrative. The story of creation, of the fall, of redemption, and new creation. And, and, and those, are, those are good words, they're helpful in kind of summarizing the whole story of the Bible, but, but sometimes we kind of see those as very churchy language. If you're, if you're not familiar with church or theology or, or the Bible, you may not really understand what those words are. And so we see it necessary to kind of supplement that story with, with some different terminology. We don't shy away from those words, but it's helpful to frame it around some other words. And so we tell the story of ought, of is, of can, and of will. We tell the story of how things ought to be, how God created the world, and we all have this sense of oughtness, that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. We all pretty much agree on that. There is an oughtness that we feel, but we now live in the chapter of is, that the world is now broken because of sin and rebellion, because of our desire to say, God, you no longer uh, hold the role of determining what's right and good. I now do that. But, but we see that this, the story of God continues and tells us what can be true through Jesus and redeeming and restoring that which is broken. And that the story is building towards what will one day be true, where all evil and injustice will be forgotten, where heaven and earth will be made new again together, and where Jesus will reign and rule over his created world. This is the story we tell. And it is this story, more than just being a helpful Cliff's Notes version of the Bible, and more than just being a little summary of what we see in the scriptures, this now becomes, for the follower of Jesus, the fundamental framework through which we make sense of everything. It's not just a helpful little summary, it's not just a Cliff's Notes version, it is now the lens through which we primarily make sense of and interpret everything. We run everything through the story of ought, is, can, and will. And it's exactly what Paul is doing. When you look at the whole chapter in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is so naturally, by second nature, just speaking the language of God's story as he's making sense of facing and explaining his suffering. Look, look at verse 6 in, in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul refers to this first chapter of ought. He says, For the same God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see this reference to the way in which God had created the world, how he set up everything. Light shines out of darkness. But we also see Paul referring to the way in which things are now in verse 4. He says, In their case, the, the God of this world, referring to our enemy, the devil, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But Paul also, as he's speaking very naturally about his suffering, points to how Jesus gives a category for how we face and embrace and explain and understand our suffering. As we saw in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then the beautiful uh, summation, the, the culmination of what Paul is saying is that he couches his suffering and the grand story to see how everything is building towards the one day where evil and pain and suffering will be eradicated. That's not to say that what we're experiencing now isn't legitimate, but Paul builds toward this hopeful point in which Jesus is fulfilling all of his purposes. In verse 16 we read, 
we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, he's not denying it, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is this four-chapter story that Paul knows so well, that he is so acquainted with, that he is able to make sense of a very difficult part of his life, namely pain and suffering. And he runs it through this framework. He runs it through the first chapter of ought. Suffering is an abnormality. It ought not to be the case because God set up the world this way. Why do we all, regardless of our religious uh, preferences, why do we all feel that suffering shouldn't be the case? Why do we feel as though death really shouldn't be a part of this world? Because that was not how God set up the world. Suffering and pain is a violation. It's a deviation from God's original plan. But suffering now is a reality because we have chosen to put ourselves in the place of God by saying, I will determine what is right and good. But suffering can be redeemed through what Christ accomplishes on our behalf, that through his suffering, he brings hope and forgiveness and restoration, and suffering one day will be eradicated and forgotten forever when heaven and earth are wed as one, as it once was in the beginning. God's story is so second nature to Paul that he's able to run something as problematic as pain and suffering. He can run it right through the story and make sense of it. And he, and he doesn't do it flippantly, but he does it so naturally. How? Because he has become so acquainted with the story. He is able to understand his suffering, face his suffering, and explain his suffering because of this story. To, to put it another way, you could say that Paul has become fluent in the story of God. That he, know, he doesn't just speak it and understand it, but as one Spanish teacher I remember telling me, that you know you've become fluent in Spanish when you start to think and dream in Spanish. You, you, you know, it's one thing to speak it and understand it, but once you start thinking and dreaming in Spanish, you are fluent. In the same way, Paul, as he's explaining his sufferings, he's speaking and dreaming the story of God. I think one way... As followers of Jesus, if, if we want to be a people who build our lives upon this story and who are able to face Monday and encounter anything that we face on Monday with this story, I believe one way we can grow in our fluency of God's story is by learning from some of our brothers and sisters of the past who modeled this so well, who were so acquainted with God's story that it gave them the categories for suffering and pain and injustice. Dr. Charlie Dates is the, the lead pastor of uh, Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. Uh, he's also a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where our, our residents uh, come from. And, and, and Dr. Dates uh, once asked this question. He said, what can the church of Jesus Christ do to tell a better story to a world filled with suffering? And he says this, she can declare hope amid despair and eternal values in light of temporal struggles. In America, I know no better witness of this than the historic black church. When their churches burned to the ground by the flames of legalized racism, they sang about a new home over in glory that is mine. When their neighborhoods were left unsupported and their humanity disrespected, they preached that the sufferings of this present time, which is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, that the sufferings of this present time are incomparable with the glory to come and in their sermons were the groans awaiting relief. This describes a people who have built their lives upon this story, 
who, who don't just know the Bible and can tell you where Habakkuk is, but, but they're able to explain and run everything about their life through it. This is what it means for us to be a people who follow Jesus in all of life. There's much we can learn from our brothers and sisters who have suffered in the past. This is what it looks like. And when we are fluent in God's story in this way, we, we don't find that our pains and sufferings go away. That's not what Paul's saying, and that's not what our historic brothers and sisters have said. But rather, we are able to make sense of and frame our sufferings in a way that brings about hope. When we build our lives upon this story, we, we find answers to some of our questions. We, we find hope that comes to our despair. We find peace in our brokenness, and we find meaning in our Monday life when this story becomes the story that shapes everything about us. That this is why you and I, we need a better story. Because the stories we tend to tell about life don't cut it. They're not big enough, true enough, powerful enough. And this is why you and I need to see everything through God's story, to make sense of it through his story. And this is why, lastly, why you and I, we need to build our Monday on this story. We need to build our Monday on this story very specifically. And, and here's, I, I want to get fairly practical for us. Uh, not that everything else we've said is impractical, but, but I want us to think about how can we become more fluent in this story in such a way that we just are able to run our suffering and pain, everything through this narrative. Well, if we want to see how our Monday life clearly matters to God, then we have to see God's story clearly. And so, so let me just suggest a few things. The first is this. We, we need to read his story. You, you knew this was coming, right? Uh, but but I, I know that sounds like utterly pedestrian, just to say, like, read the Bible. Okay, check, done. What's the next thing? But this is important, especially given the fact that, I mean, biblical illiteracy continues to increase, not just in America, but, but in the church. There was a LifeWay research study that came out a few years ago that showed that 45% of people who attend church regularly read the Bible once a week and no more. And that one in five of regular church attenders never read the Bible. Now, I don't say this to make you feel guilty. I'm just, I'm just saying that if we are to be a people who want to follow Jesus in all of life, we need to know this word, know his story, not so that we can prove that we're good Christians, but rather we see the scriptures as a means to the end of knowing Jesus, of, of, of having our, our loves recalibrated. I mean, these stats, I mean, it's, it's no surprise that 82% of, of churches, of People in America believe that the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, is in the Bible. Spoiler alert, it is not in the Bible, okay? Just, just you, can, you can go look for it. But like, the, like we, we don't know our scriptures. It's also, it's also no surprise that a surprisingly high number of people believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> That's not a joke. I didn't write that. You can't come up with this stuff. It's pointing to the fact that there is. Some of you just learned something new this morning. You're like, oh, okay. But, but seriously, <laughs> while we can laugh at this, this actually isn't a laughing matter. We need to read our Bibles more regularly. Again, not because this is what proves that, that we love God, but rather it's because we need a better story to build our Monday life upon. Now, let me, let me just suggest a few things uh, for how we can do this. How can we uh, become more fluent? How can we read his story more effectively? Well, one thing I would just say is have a plan. Carve out time. And, and for you, maybe, maybe you're thinking like, I don't have time in my schedule. And so I, I get that. But like, you do. You have time. We all make time for things that are important. 
Carve out five minutes. The average chapter of the Bible can be read in less than eight minutes. And so find a time in your schedule, in your day, and start small. Don't think like, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible in nine minutes or whatever. Well, that's impossible. But, but find a, a small place to start. Choose a book of the Bible. Start in the Gospels of the Gospel of Mark or John. Read a chapter a day. Maybe read a psalm a day. The psalms speak to our human emotions. It's a beautiful place to start. Maybe you can utilize the YouVersion app and listen to the Bible or read on your phone while you're in between meetings or as you're waiting for the laundry to switch or whatever. Or you can use a Bible study guide. I would encourage you, there, there's great little resources. John Stott and T. Wright have these little Bible study guides. They're phenomenal resources that walk through books of the Bible. And another thing I would say is share what you read. As you read the scriptures, I mean, we tend to enjoy and learn things when we share them. And so as you engage the scriptures, share what you read. Two other quick things I would point out is uh, you can utilize our, we have a, reading, a Bible reading plan called Open Here. It's on our website under resources. It's a great way to have this daily habit of, of scripture intake and reading the Bible. You can get notifications that are sent to you if you like that. Another resource I would point to you and commend to you is the Bible Project. The Bible Project is this phenomenal video resource uh, that creates compellingly beautiful videos that are also theologically rich, that give overviews of entire books of the Bible, biblical themes and words. As, as a seminary graduate, like, I am, I am so amazed by the content of this, and my kids love it. Like, like we hang out on a Saturday, like, can we watch the Bible Project? I'm like, it's not just because they're pastor kids. Like, it's really good content. They love it. Check out the Bible Project. And then the last thing I would say is the, the series guide. If you didn't get one of these, our Church for Monday series guide has some great ideas and resources as well for how to more regularly read the scriptures. So we need to read his story. But second, we need to respond to his story. You see, it's, it's not just like about reading the Bible and checking it off. It's not, we don't read for mileage, but rather we read for formation. We read and we respond to it. And so some of us think, okay, I've read the Bible, but, but so what? what? What does that now do? Well, I'm glad you asked the question, so what? Uh, because here are a list of some questions we can respond to. And this is, this is like the most creative thing that I think I've come up with. Patrick and I did this, and like, it, was, it was wonderful. But here are some questions to think about. As you can see, so what? See, it was really clever. It's really wonderful. But, but as you're reading the scriptures, some of you are getting it now. But ask these questions of yourself. Who is God calling me to serve? And maybe that means a, a tangible act of love. Maybe it means forgiving someone. Who is someone that God is calling you to serve? Second, what is God calling me to omit? Is God asking me to repent of something, to, to let go of something, to give up something that, that is holding on to me or is toxic or, or is, have I created a habit that is unmaking me? What is God calling me to omit? Third, how is he calling me to worship? What does it look like to delight in God and to ascribe worth to him, to, to honor him outside of these walls? How can I worship God beyond Sunday? Uh, fourthly, what is he calling me to hold on to? Maybe there, there's a relationship that you, you, you're wanting to let go, but you need to hold on to. There's, there's a habit that you need to keep, in, keep deepening. What is something that God is asking you to hold on to? What is he calling you to, uh, to adore? Is there something in his good created world that he wants you to delight in and to appreciate, to value? One of the ways we can enjoy and delight and worship God is through the good gifts he has created for us. And lastly, how is he calling me to be thankful? How can I grow in gratitude towards God or towards others? 
So that's just a simple list of questions we can think about as we read his story and respond to his story. But thirdly and lastly, we need to all, we all need to run our Monday through this story. We all need to run our Monday life through this story. Just as we saw Paul being fluent in God's story as he ran his suffering through this four-chapter narrative, just as I even asked Lori those questions, Lori, how, how do you see brokenness in your line of work? How, how is God using you to redeem that brokenness? Ask yourselves these very questions. Kids, where do you see brokenness in your school? How is God using you to bring about redemption and healing in the broken parts of the places that he has put you? Where do you see brokenness in your neighborhoods, in your homes, in your places of work? And how is God calling you to be an agent of redemption through the places and the relationships you have? Where do you see God's goodness in your Monday life? Where do you see brokenness? How is he using you to redeem that brokenness? And what will the world look like when your Monday life is finally rid of greed and pride and injustice? Run your Monday life through this story. But not just your occupation. Run everything through this story. As followers of Jesus, this this story now becomes the primary and fundamental lens through which we understand everything else. That's not to say that there's no wisdom to be found in other categories. Don't hear that. But what I am saying is that this now becomes the primary lens through which we make sense of all of life. Before we apply a political lens, an economic lens, or a cultural lens of some kind, we start with the lens of the story of God. Uh, uh, Last year, I attended a a phenomenal forum put on by World Relief, a phenomenal organization uh, who also has a subsidiary organization called the Evangelical Immigration Table. And it was a phenomenal, phenomenal forum. And of the many disheartening and saddening things that I learned in that forum, this was one of them. That just 12% of evangelical Christians say that their views on the arrival of refugees and immigrants are primarily informed by the Bible. 12%. Even as I say those words, some of you right now are on edge because those words, immigration and refugees, have a political association with you. And they are, there, there are political categories. I'm not denying that. What I am saying is that, and here, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying we all have to agree on how we think about immigration and refugee crisis and, and the economy and welfare and the environment. Like, I'm not saying we all have to agree. What I am saying very clearly is that if you are a follower of Jesus, your primary fundamental lens that you make sense of all of reality is through God's story. And so if you want to part, if you want to depart from that, that's fine, but understand that you are now no longer following Jesus. You are now choosing another narrative to conduct yourselves and to understand reality. Again, I'm not saying we've got to be on the same page politically, economically, socially, but what I am saying is that that 12% is a disgrace if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and we take his word seriously. This is what it means to build our life on the Bible. This is what it means to be formed and shaped by this word. We're gonna disagree on a lot of things, but this should be first, the primary lens, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. This is now the lens that we run our jobs, our recreation, our relationships, our sexuality, our finances, everything about us, we run through this story. 
And we do this not just because this is a, a great story that provides answers to our questions, hopes to our despair, peace to our brokenness, and meaning to our Monday life, although it does that. But we build our lives in the story because it is the story of God entering into our story to make us a part of his story. That's why we build our lives on this truth. It is the story of God entering our world through Jesus Christ, through, through his life, death, and resurrection. He redeems and restores and is reconciling all things to himself. And he summons us and joins us to be a part of this work. And that through faith and repentance, trusting in him, this story now becomes our story. And I believe it is the only story big enough to explain why all of life matters. That it's the only story that's true enough to sustain us in our suffering, and it is the only story powerful enough that it won't fail us in the end. When we enter into Monday and build our lives on this story, we find ourselves living a story that is worth living. But the question for all of us is, what, what story will you build your life on tomorrow? What story will you tell? And may it be this story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I do confess to you just my, the many lenses, the many categories that I turn to before understanding how you see this world. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have sought to, to submit ourselves to some story that is, that is lesser than yours. Yes, Lord, help us to see that, that all truth is your truth. But Lord, may we be a people, if we are followers of Jesus, may we be a people who build our lives upon this story so that we might enter into our Monday life telling a better story, reflecting your character and goodness. And through that, Lord, may others see the hollowness of the stories they have submitted their lives to and seek to live for a better story, to live for the story of the one who entered into our story to make us a part of his. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you have not let us Stay in our broken place, but you have come to redeem us and restore us, and you've invited us to be a part of your work in this world. May we see that story, and may it shape and frame everything about us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.